Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. Thank you, Adam. Good morning, North. Thank you uh, to all our families who are a part of that adoption foster video. Um, You guys um, remind me of what the book of James says, where it tells us that um, true religion is to look after orphans and widows in their time of need. So you guys are the real superheroes. You guys are the real MVPs. Thank you for giving us uh, inspiration for the rest of us regular folk who are trying to follow Jesus. We, we appreciate that. It's insp- inspiring. I think one of the things that is most miraculous about that video, though, is how did the Vandenbergs get 15 people on a love seat? Did you guys notice that? <laughs> like, I wish our family loved each other as much as they love each other. <laughs> I don't know that we could ever make that work, but congratulations on that, guys. That's impressive. Well, uh, this morning we're continuing our series uh, called Hidden Kingdom, Present King on the Book of Esther. I got to tell you this morning, uh, one of my favorite uh, hobbies, I guess it's a hobby, is, is really loving researching history. I like to read and I like to study history, and of course by reading and studying, I mean I like to watch Netflix documentaries on history, and so I tap into that inner millennial in me, which, uh, uh, which is in there somewhere, but... Uh, but at the same time, like one of the things that I really love, one of the historical periods that I really love is World War II history. And I don't know if you've done a lot of research in World War II or you're familiar with it, but one of the reasons I love it is because it's such a huge consequential event, uh, a time in, our, in world history that's kind of determined really who we are today in many ways in terms of modern history and, and the world that we live in today. And at the same time, there are so many different turning points in that war that if one thing would have happened just a little bit differently, we'd end up with a totally different result and our world might look completely different than it does today. For instance, if the French early on in the war trusted in their reconnaissance, they could have eliminated Hitler's army um, in the early years of the war before they were even conquered. Um, If you know, Hitler would have, in the Battle of Britain, decided to continue his bombing raids on the air bases throughout Great Britain. He could have wiped out the Royal Air Force, which would have led the German army to conquer the entire area of Europe at that point, which would have changed things because we weren't even in the war at that point. What if Japan paid attention to its military advisors and decided not to bomb Pearl Harbor? I mean, all kinds of things. If you look at history, if you look at World War II history, it's amazing at how many different turning points that if things just would have happened, one small thing would have happened differently, how the whole thing could have turned out completely different. And I think I'm fascinated by that in a lot of ways because I, I think in a lot of ways that history mirrors our lives in general. In other words, there are all kinds of things that have happened to us throughout our lives that if one thing would have just happened a little bit differently, it would have changed the course and the trajectory of our lives. And in some cases, those things are good things. In other words, there was a way that things were going and our our lives changed for the better. And it's easy in those times to, to, to look at places in the Bible where it says that God is good and he brings all things to good for our purposes because we can see the good in our lives. But in other cases, of course, there are times in our lives where something turned and there was a turning point in our lives that changed things for the worse or caused things to be more difficult or placed us in a position of suffering and difficulty that maybe has even made an impact in our lives so significant that it's carried on even until today. And in those times, it's a lot harder to believe that God is working out things for good in our lives. And if we're honest, many times when we think about that, because of these things that have happened, we, are, we have a tendency to doubt that God is working out everything for good because it, sure, it surely doesn't look like it. And it's hard to trust a God who is 
not visible, and then when we look at our lives and we see the things that are visible that don't necessarily speak to God's goodness in our lives, it can cause us to doubt. And I think all of us at one point or another have been through that period of time in our lives if you're not in it right now. And that's ever been you and you've questioned God's activity in, his, in this world and his care for you in your life. I'm hoping that the book of Esther is an encouragement to you as we've gone through it. Because this book is all about how God is working things behind the scenes. And especially as we get into chapter 6 and 7, which we're going to look at today, we're going to see how God's activity becomes more and more visible throughout the book as we move forward. One of the things that the book of Esther reminds us of is a timeless principle that still kind of exists for us today, is that the reality that there are spiritual things going on, the things that we can't see behind the scenes all the time, that in large part determine the things that we can see visibly in our world. And that's a way of saying that God is in control of everything as he's moving things forward. We can't always see how he's moving it, but many times we can see the effects of how those things are taking place in the world around us. And when you look at the lives of Mordecai and Esther, who are people called by God to step out in faith, we begin to see how God's kingdom is visible through their lives, starting all the way back in chapter 3 and becoming more and more visible even as we get to these two chapters today. And I think in large part, that's a, it's a, very great, uh, a very great comparison in terms of what it looks like for us as the church today to understand what it means to make God's kingdom visible, the invisible kingdom that is actually changing us in our lives as Christians as we make it visible in the lives that we live in the world around us. And so if you're familiar with the book of Esther or you've been uh, with us through this series, you know that this book takes place during a time of biblical history that we know as the exile. The exile is a time when the Jews are being conquered by a foreign army they're, and, and, and they're now under a foreign empire, under a foreign king. And at this place in Esther, it's a foreign king by the name of King Xerxes under the Persian Empire. And in the background of this entire book and really all the books of the exile in the Bible, the, the same questions come to the surface repeatedly in God's people in terms of, is God going to deliver us? Is God going to keep his promises? Are we going to remain in exile forever? Or is there hope that we will ever make it back to the land and have our own king and have our own, uh, have our own nation again and have our own identity? And in the midst of all these things, these things are very uncertain as the exiles continue to face the prospect that they may live as exiles forever. But in their vague memory, someone, somewhat very vague in some cases, there is a remembrance of the promises that God has made to them, and that's what they're clinging to. And as we open up this book, what we see is that we're introduced to a man by the name of King Xerxes, infamous in history as one of the most uh, significant kings in the Persian Empire. In fact, King Xerxes presided over the Persian Empire during what we know as the Golden Age of the ancient Persian Empire. And the book has spent a lot of time introducing us to King Xerxes, about, and we feel like we've kind of gotten to know him pretty well, I think, if we've gone through this book. And we see this guy who, in many cases, is very brutal, certainly egotistical. In other words, he's almost like every other ancient king that we know of in history. He acts the same way as the rest of them. There's nothing that's too remarkable. He's not too brutal, and, and he certainly is egotistical, but not any more than any other king. But I think one of the things that we see about Xerxes is that, at least in my view, he's tremendously incompetent. And here's what I mean by this. Every edict that we've seen throughout this book that has been kind of these evil edicts, all the way from the first one that he issues about, you know, Persian women now have to be slaves to their husband, to the second one that Esther gets 
uh, kind of uh, you know, caught up in, which is all the virgins throughout the empire have to come to the king, and then they get to play this game of who wants to marry an evil king. And then the third edict, the, the, the worst of them all, the most uh, despicable of them all, is this edict that's gone out throughout the empire to eliminate the million or so Jews who are in the Persian empire. All of those edicts, or I should say none of those edicts, were actually Xerxes' idea. He's just kind of this guy where somebody comes to him and says, hey, how about we do this? And it's almost like they put this Jedi mind trick on him, and he says, okay, that sounds good. That sounds like a great idea. Without even really thinking it through. And so I don't want to make excuses for this guy, because I think he certainly is a bad guy. I mean, he's not a great guy. I think we could at least say that. But he's almost, to me, like this kind of abusive frat boy who's in over his head more than he is an evil genius. And I say that because the real evil genius, the one who is truly the villain in this story, is a man by the name of Haman. We've been introduced to Haman a couple chapters ago, and Haman has a man who has worked his way up to being second in command, basically the right-hand man to the king. And so he has just as much authority in some cases as the king, almost as much, and, and, and he is the one ultimately behind this depraved idea to eliminate God's people, the Jews, which is essentially state-sponsored genocide. And in the midst of all of this mess that's going on in the kingdom, all these edicts that are coming from the king's palace, we find Esther and Mordecai, Jewish people, part of God's promised people, in the midst of a situation where they're trying to consider whether or not they're going to live in the kingdom of Xerxes or the kingdom of God. And they have a decision of faith to make. Because for both Esther and Mordecai, their political careers are actually quite remarkable. When you consider that they both started out as exiles, as second-class citizens, and they've made their way up through the political ranks, where at this point Mordecai is a significant political official, and at this point Esther is the queen of Persia. In other words, the most powerful woman on the face of the planet at this point. There's a lot that they have to lose by stepping out in faith and admitting and revealing the fact that they're actually Jews. Because that could cost them not only their position, not only their place of comfort and political power, but it could cost them their very lives, especially under this new edict that has been put out throughout the kingdom. But we see that Mordecai and Esther decide to make a decision for faith, to trust in the promises of God, to make a decision to stand on the kingdom of God and then just let God handle it from there. And in verses 4 and 5, or excuse me, chapters 4 and 5 that we looked at last week, that's kind of the turning point of this book. And then we begin to see how God becomes even more and more visible through his activity in their lives. Now, again, this is the one book in the Bible where God is not directly mentioned. But we can see the activity of God clearly as he begins to move forward and move the story forward in these chapters. Now, what is happening throughout this book, again, presents us with this reality that the spiritual reality is operating behind the physical reality. And so what starts out as a hidden kingdom starts to become more and more visible as we move through this book in the lives of the human characters there. And the difference happens again when Esther and Mordecai make their public profession of faith as God's people. And last week, although I mentioned that this was the turning point, of course, of this story, in reality, those, that's not really the climax of the story. The climax is actually what we hit today. Because if you remember back into maybe like your high school literature class, the climax of the story is actually when the hero or the protagonist and the antagonist or the villain have their big confrontation. And we're going to see that happen today as our hero, who is Esther, meets the protagonist, meets the antagonist or the great villain of the story, who is Haman. And there's this, there's this confrontation that happens in these chapters that moves everything and changes everything going forward. 
And so as we get into Esther chapter 6, we're going to see it here in, in verse 1. We're going to read in verse 1 and here in just a minute. But as we do, before we do, I want to remind us really of where we are so we can get our footing. This is a day after Esther has gone into the king's throne room and asked the king basically for a favor. And we know that in that case, if you were here last week, we talked about the fact that if she walks in or anybody were to walk into the king's throne room unannounced, they, they walk in there under the threat of death. But the king extends his golden scepter, there's grace there, and he asked Esther what she wants. And she says, I want to throw a party, or I want to throw a dinner for you and for Haman. And he says, okay, are you sure? I'll give you half my kingdom, that's all you want? And she says, yes. So she throws a dinner for them, and at the dinner, he asks her again, okay, now what is it that you really want? I know this can't be it. And she says, I actually want to throw another dinner for you guys tomorrow night. Like, all right. And when we pick up here in Esther chapter 6, this is after that first dinner. And it says here in verse 1, between those two dinners, after the first one, before the second one. And in verse 1 it says this, On that night the king, that's King Xerxes, could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and, Shares, and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? Now the king's young men who attended him said, Well, nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Well, who's in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. Now the king's young men told him, Haman is here standing in the court. And the king said, Well, let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, And what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? Well, and Haman said to himself, Well, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And so Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and let the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes of the horse be handed down, and let the robes and the horse be handed over to the one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Well, then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate and leave out nothing that you have mentioned. Now, I don't know if you see the comic irony in this whole scene right? But we're told that that night, which connects us to the previous event, which means that the king is after the feast, after the first feast that Esther throws for the king and, and for Haman, he's sitting in his room trying to go to sleep, and he realizes that he can't sleep, so he calls for his attendants, and he says to him, basically, read to me the book of the Chronicles, which what are the book of the Chronicles? They're just basically all the transactions that have happened in the king's courts that have been written down. And so there might be some interesting stuff in there. It's kind of like a record of Congress almost, of congressional meetings. It's almost like, have you ever seen C-SPAN before and watched C-SPAN? It's like somebody reading the transcript of C-SPAN out loud. Maybe there's some exciting things in there, but 95% of it is just dreadfully boring, right? And so we're not told why Xerxes wants the Chronicles read, but I think it's probably because he's thinking to himself, what can get me to sleep? I need to sleep, and uh, if they read these things, it'll help me fall asleep, right? And so they start reading, and apparently they're reading for a long time. In fact, all night long, the, the king still can't fall asleep. And they get to this event that happened a few years earlier. 
And we know it in the book because the, the author tells us that Mordecai had overheard two eunuchs who were plotting an assassination attempt on King Xerxes. So he goes and he tells Queen Esther, and Esther tells the king that Mordecai has warned, is warning you about this. And so Mordecai essentially saves the king's life. Well, the king hears this story in the Chronicles, and he's like, hey, I don't think we ever did anything to help Mordecai or, or, to, or to recognize Mordecai in this, did we? And the attendants say, no, I, I, don't, I don't think we did. And, and so it's years later, and this was an embarrassing thing for a king because for an ancient king, for someone to do this, especially a government official, you had to honor this guy and appreciate him publicly. And so it's almost like when you remember that wedding gift that you didn't give three years down the road and you realize, ah, if I'm going to give a gift now, it better be something really good. Xerxes is kind of backpedaling. He's like, we've got to do something really good for this guy. And so he's thinking about it, and as he's thinking about it, coincidentally, Haman walks into the court and as the author tells us, as we're clued in by the reader, Haman is coming into the court to ask the king's position, uh, permission to hang Mordecai the Jew on the gallows that he has just built outside of his house, 75 feet in the air. And at the same time, the author's telling us, here is the king who was wanting to honor Mordecai, and here is Haman who's wanting to kill Mordecai. Irony's set up right there. And he walks in, and, and the king says, Haman, come here. I'm glad you're here. I need you to help me out with this predicament I've got going on. What should the king do to really honor somebody that he really wants to appreciate? And Haman's like, of course the king's talking about me, because that's all Haman can see is himself, right? So he's like, who would the king want to honor more than me? And so he comes up with this over-the-top ceremony, and he says, let the king's crown be worn, the king's robes be worn, let him ride the king's best horse, and get a nobleman that just walks in front of him and announces to the city through a parade, this is who the king delights to honor. <laughs> and of course, Haman has no idea that the person that the king has in mind is Mordecai, the man who he seems to hate more than anybody, and of course, he's trying to kill. And I would have loved to see Haman's face when the king looks at him and says, go do so to Mordecai the Jew, and don't leave any of that out. It's steeped in irony. I mean, can you believe, it's, the scene's almost believe, unbelievable. In verse 11, it says this, So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. In verse 12, Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. And then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai before whom you have begun to fall is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. And verse 14, While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. Now, Haman has no choice really but to obey the king's command. And I think as he's parading as he's parading Mordecai with the king's robes and the king's crown on the king's horse through the city, saying over and over again, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. I can only imagine how he's seething with each step in anger. And as he has to say that over and over again, how humiliating this must have been for him. And as he hears the crowds cheering Mordecai with the same cheers that he wanted for himself, it's probably driving him absolutely nuts. And sure enough, after he's done doing his duty, he runs immediately to his home, covers his head in shame, and seeks kind of respite with his wife and his friends there. And he tells them, and as he gets home, he says, look, you guys won't believe the day that I had. <laughs> it is the worst possible thing that could have happened. 
You know this Mordecai the Jew, the one we're trying to, he, the king made me parade him through the city like some kind of hero. And his wife says something really interesting to him. His wife says basically, if Mordecai is, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him. Which is amazing because it's kind of a confession of faith, but at the same time, it's a foreshadowing of what's to happen because things were about to get much worse for Haman in chapter 7. And if we're thinking to ourselves, and I don't know what Haman's thinking, as the eunuchs come and pick him up for dinner and take him to the next feast that's supposed to happen that Esther is throwing in honor of him and the king. But I think in some ways he's probably thinking to himself, well, I can just get to dinner, just enjoy dinner, relax with the king and the queen. Maybe, maybe if I play my cards right, I can get back in their good graces, things will be fine, and they'll recognize and honor me again as I should be honored. And then he's probably thinking to himself, well, and the, and the edict's still in place, and so Mordecai will be taken care of eventually, so I don't need to ask to hang him on the gallows. We'll just wait for that to take care of itself. Well, Esther chapter 7 is one of those turning points, again, that changes everything. In verse 1, it says this. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Well, then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Well, then King Hashuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he, and where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose from his wrath, from the wine drinking, and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine. And as Haman was falling on the couch where, as, as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was, and the king said, "Will he even assault my, the queen in my presence in my own house?" And the word left the mouth of the, as the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said. Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose words saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, well, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows where he had prepared, that he had prepared for Mordecai, and the wrath of the king abated. Well, things just get even crazier in chapter 7. I mean, into this scene, as Haman sits down, that same night, that all of these things have happened. He's sitting at the table, and the king looks to Queen Esther for the third time. And I don't know why it's the third time. Maybe the third time's a charm. Maybe Esther planned this from the beginning. It really does seem like she did. But at this point, the king asks her for a third time, dating all the way back to the first time she was in the throne room. Look, Esther, I know this is not why you came into the throne room. You didn't risk your life so you could invite us to a feast two nights in a row. What is it that you really want? Again, you can have half my kingdom if you want it. Anything you want. And she finally says to him, look, this edict has come out throughout the kingdom that puts me in danger and a million other Jews, a million other people of my, uh, of, of, of my heritage in this kingdom. 
And what's amazing about this, and, you, and the king, king reacts, and he says, well, who did this, right? I don't know if he's playing coy like he doesn't remember because he was the one who actually signed the edict, but at the same time, who did this? Whose idea is this? And this is how we identify who the villain is. She says, that enemy, the foe, Haman. Now, I'm sure all of us have been to some pretty awkward dinner tables before and dinner conversations, but this has to top all of them. I mean, imagine this for a minute, right? This is so much worse than that political discussion that you're dreading that your second cousin is going to bring up on Thursday at Thanksgiving, right? So much worse than that. Because she looks at him and says, he's the one who's done this, the one who's sitting right next to you. But at the same time, Esther also reveals for the first time that she is Jewish. Which as she's standing, uh, sitting across from the table from her husband now, that is a lie that she has kind of been toying with for their entire marriage. In other words, the king thought she was Persian this entire time. And this is the first time that she says publicly in front of anybody, and she says it in front of the king, that I'm Jewish. So the question then becomes, how is the king going to react? Because we know King Xerxes has gotten rid of queens for less than this, right? I mean, Queen Vashti, he got rid of her for much less than what Esther has done in lying to him. But it's amazing to see the way that this turns. We've been taught, I think at this point, as we're reading through the book, to expect the unexpected, and this is exactly what happens. Because Queen, King Xerxes, let's just be honest, is not necessarily a gentleman through this, through, this, uh, through, uh, through this book, right? And yet he turns into like this knight of shining armor for his queen in this moment. He's like, who would do this to my queen? Who would threaten my queen? Let me have his head. Unbelievable that, that my queen would be put in so much danger. And as she says, it's Haman, the, queen, the king is caught with this predicament. That's my right-hand man. He's my most trusted advisor. What am I going to do? So he gets up in a rage, storms out of the room, and goes to the garden to think it over. And as he's thinking it over, he leaves Haman and Esther at the table, and Haman recognizes right away, he's probably going to kill me. He's upset. My only hope is to beg for the mercy from Queen Esther. And so he begins to beg her right at the dinner table. And the, again, this scene is steeped in irony because here was Haman just not too long ago who had the signet ring of the king and asked for the edict of all the Jews to be wiped out over the empire. And he is in this place, in this moment now, begging for his life from a Jewish woman. And as he's begging, she gets up from the table, tries to escape and goes over to the couch. And in his desperation, apparently Haman forgot one of the most important palace rules, which was that no man could be with the queen without the king present, and that was under penalty of death if they did that. And he goes and he chases her down, jumps onto the couch and continues to beg her. And as he does in that scene, that's when Xerxes returns, and he sees Haman on the couch with his wife, and he's filled with rage again and says, you would even do this in my own house. You would assault my wife. And at that point, Haman's fate is sealed. The attendants who are there say, hey, if you want to take care of him, he just built a 75-foot gallows. It's, it's over at his house. It's like brand new. It's ready to go. The king's like, how convenient. Let's do that. And so Haman is hanged. And as we finish this chapter, in case we're not keen to the irony that's going on already, verse 10 is full of irony. And Haman is hanged on the very same gallows that he built to kill and hang Mordecai. Now, there's been a lot of drama in this book to this point. These two chapters are full of the most drama and intrigue, I think, almost in any place in Scripture. I mean, there are so many twists and turns and things that happen throughout this that, 
um, you know, that a Hollywood screenwriter would struggle uh, to write something like this. And it's certainly entertaining, but the question is, as we take a breath and kind of take this in, is it just meant to be entertaining for us? Because this is not a Hollywood script. This is not just a novel. This is God's Word. And so the question we should be asking is, although it's entertaining, what is God saying to us through His Word here in Esther chapters 6 and 7? Well, I think something that we begin to see in all of this is that as the author makes so much of a point to show us the irony in this story, it's almost like you get to a place where these two chapters are just so unbelievable that the only option you have for explaining how these things happen is to say, well, God must have done this. It's almost like, I I think this is like miraculous irony. C.S. Lewis once said that miracles are things that only God can do. This is like miraculous irony that's happening here. We can't get to the end of these chapters if we've been reading the book to this point through eyes of faith and think to ourselves, anything but, man, it is God who is doing this all behind the scenes to change and to move the hearts of kings in ways that are profound and that accomplish his purposes. And I think just like Esther, Esther finds herself in this bigger redemptive story. As she, once she steps into faith, she finds herself in this bigger redemptive story that gets swept along by God's providence and sovereignty around her. And I don't want to get too deep into a discussion this morning about the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. We just don't have time for that. There might be a time for that at some point. But I think one of the things that we discover here is that God is sovereign in all of this and that he brings, that he's always faithful to work out his promises in ways that we might not anticipate, in ways that we might not plan, in ways that we might not even recognize in the moment. But he's always faithful to bring his plans and purposes to bear in this world. And then at the same time, we have human will to make decisions and to participate in things and to be active in this world. And those things have implications that stretch beyond just our individual lives, especially in faith. They affect things that are bigger than us. I think about the most famous line that comes from this book, as we saw a couple chapters ago, where Mordecai says to Esther, who knows that, but that you might have come to the throne or to this position for such a time as this. What Mordecai is saying is essentially, look, Esther, there is something bigger at work around you. And God hasn't brought you to the throne just so that you can enjoy being Queen Esther. God has brought you to this position for something bigger than that. And God's sovereignty, I know, is often a mystery when we see it happening around us, but I want to give you three things that I think we see from the book of Esther that helps us understand God's sovereignty as he moves around us and he moves through our lives. First of all, that God does, that God accomplishes his plans and purposes in God's way. When we say that God is sovereign, what we are saying is that God is free. He does things on his timing in whatever way he wants to do it, in whatever place he wants to do it. Now, he doesn't do anything outside of his character, and he doesn't do anything outside of his promises to us, but outside of that, he is free to do things as he does them in his own timing. That's what we mean by saying God is sovereign and us allowing God to be sovereign in our lives. So he does it in his way. Secondly, he does it by his power. You know, God is gracious to choose us and to use us, but he doesn't have to use us. When Mordecai says to Esther, Esther, look, you can choose to step into faith in this place and to take what I believe is God's calling in your life, but if you don't, God will rise up deliverance from somewhere else for the, for the Jews. But how much better would it be for you to step into this and to trust God, which is to your benefit? And when we see Esther make that decision, everything changes. God takes over and moves everything forward. 
And then finally, God does it by, on his, in his ways, by his power, and then finally for his ends. You know, God does everything for the redemption of creation in this, his creation in this world and for ultimately his glory. And again, all things according to his character and his promises, but a big part of that, of course, is including that, including his ends in our good. Just like Esther's story, we live in a world that's broken. We are still people who are broken, who are being healed all the time. We are people in process. We live in situations that get awkward, that get difficult, that sometimes get heart-wrenching. God hasn't promised that we won't face those situations in this world. But what he has promised is that his ends are good ends for us as well if we are in Christ. Now, many times, there's been many times in my life when I've seen God's sovereignty working around my life in small ways and big ways, but one of the most significant ways was back when I sensed a call to pastoral ministry. It was about 20 years ago, and I was in college at the time. I was a, I was newly, I was, I was a new Christian, and I was learning to what, what it meant to follow Jesus, and the church that I was a part of at that time, they were on, there was a spring break mission trip coming up, and they invited us to join to be a part of this mission trip, and so we decided to go over to San Diego State University because they were on a different schedule than us. They would be in class while we were on our spring break. And our goal was just to go over there and kind of do some evangelistic skits and pray and talk with people and just kind of see what happens. And so we'd show up every day on campus and we would spend, you know, five or six hours on campus just talking to students. And I remember the first day that we were there, I met a guy by the name of Gene. He was one of the students there. And we started talking and it seemed like Gene really needed somebody to talk to because within like five minutes of our conversation, all of a sudden he's just pouring out his entire life to me. He's talking about the things he's struggling with in school, the things that he's struggling with in his family. He's talking about like spiritually how he's struggling, how, you know, I kind of grew up in church, but I haven't been to church in a while. And I, I, you know, and you guys are here from a church and I've just been thinking a lot about who God is and, you know, what it means to, you know, follow Jesus and all these things, right? So I don't consider myself a Christian, but I'm very spiritual. And so I just, I didn't know what to say, really. I was like, oh, okay, well, uh, let me, and I just shared my story. And he seemed to be touched by that, and, and then, you know, he had to get on to his next class, and he said, hey, so I prayed for him, and then we exchanged phone numbers, and we promised to kind of hook up later on in that week. And so I called him that night, and uh, we talked about meeting, like, in the next, uh, you know, a couple days on Thursday, and I showed up on campus where we agreed to meet, and he didn't show up. He kind of stood me up. So I called him later on, got his voicemail, left a message, and then the next morning, on Friday morning, when we were all getting ready to leave, and there was, like, 30 or so people on this trip, like 25 students and five to 10 pastors and adult leaders. We're all getting packed up and our, and our plan for Friday morning was just to drive home from San Diego to Tucson, about a seven hour drive. And so we'd get home in the afternoon. We weren't planning on going anywhere else, not back to the campus or anything. And I get a call that morning as we're packing up and it's Gene on the line and he says, hey, I'm sorry I missed the meeting the other day. I, just, I got wrapped up in schoolwork, but hey, um, could you meet with me this morning? I'm on campus this morning and I really need somebody to talk to. So I'm like, well, I, I don't know, I gotta ask. And so I talked to one of the pastors and he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a guy we've been praying for, you've been trying to meet with him, let's do it. I'm like, well, it's gonna mess everybody's schedule. Don't worry about it, we'll figure it out. So 15 passenger vans, SUVs, we all pull up into the parking lot again at San Diego State University about a half an hour out of our way, right? And they park there and we get out and we meet at this bench that we had set up the meeting place at for 10 o'clock in the morning and it's 10 till 10 Remember, we sit down at that bench, I turn around and I look at the parking lot where the 15 passenger van and the SUVs are and everybody's got their face pressed against the glass, just kind of <laughs> waiting for what might happen, right? Because they all knew the story by this point. So 10 till 10, 5 till 10, 10 o'clock, Gene's still not there. 
Five after 10, Gene's still not there. 10 minutes after 10, Gene's still not there. And I'm thinking to myself, I think he stood me up again. And it's about 10.15, and I remember looking up into the parking lot and seeing those same faces pressed against the glass, except they're much more frustrated than anticipating anything at this point. They're like, okay, let's go, let's get out of here. And so I looked to the guy, the pastor was sitting with me on the bench, and I said, hey, I think we just need to go. I think he's, it's 10.15, you know, we need to get on the road, we're late, all that stuff. And he says, let's just wait five more minutes. And I'm glad he did, because two minutes later, we see Gene walking up the path towards us. And he sits down, and almost immediately, the first thing he just says to us, just honest, he's like, I just want to know what it, what it means to become a Christian. I just know that's what I need to do right now. And so he's halfway to tears, and we begin praying for him and sharing the gospel with him. And when it comes his turn to pray, he can't even get the words out. He's, he's so overcome with emotion. After we're done praying, you know, we give him some contact information to a church that's there, and then say goodbye, and, and we leave, and we get in the van. And I remember that, that journey all the way back home, a seven-hour drive from San Diego to Tucson. I was so grateful that God allowed me to be a part of this thing. And I remember thinking over and over to myself, what I was saying to God was, God, I want to do that with the rest of my life as many times as possible. Because that was amazing. And you know how it goes. You come back from an event like that, you come back from camp or a mission trip, and you get into regular life. And for me, regular life was, now I have to pick a major in school. And so I remember sitting down and and thinking to myself, uh, what do I want to do? I I just want to make as much money as possible. So I got my hands on one of these catalogs that actually had a list of majors in the colleges and then the the salaries that you would get as you graduated. I just worked my way from the top all the way down, applying to these different colleges, right? And a lot of them you had to apply to, and I'm getting denied, rejected, and all of them. And I got pretty good grades. I think to myself, why is this happening? And the thing that added frustration to it is that there were other guys who I knew that were friends of mine who had worse grades than me, and they're getting accepted to these colleges. And I'm thinking to myself, what is going on? And this entire time behind the scenes, God is reminding me of his call on my life. Remember what you said. Remember what I put in your heart. You don't want to do anything else but this as much as possible for the rest of your life. I've got a plan for you. And as I was thinking through this, you know, this is always an example for me of God's sovereignty in my life because he did it his way. Look, he closed doors and circumstances that I would have loved for him to have opened at that time. He did it by his power. But I was not a guy who grew up with my dad as a preacher or my grandfather as a preacher, wanted to preach since I was five years old. When I was 20 years old, I still didn't want to preach. I didn't want to be a pastor. I was a kid who got kicked out of Sunday school class as a kid all the time. I was a kid who got in trouble at school. I was a kid who didn't, wasn't leading his youth ministry. I was a kid who only went to youth ministry so I could go on the cool ski trips. And on the pastor playground, I'm the last one getting picked. And yet God looked at me and said, I'm going to use you. And look, 20 years ago, this is the last thing I thought I'd be doing. And 20 years later, this is the only thing I can see myself doing. God does it his way, his power, and for his ends. You know, a lot of people, we've lost track with some of the people that we knew back in high school and in college and and you kind of reconnect with them in Facebook, and almost every single one of them, their first reaction is like, you're doing what now? Because in their minds, I'm the last person that should ever be doing anything like this from the person that they knew back then. And we can say that God has a sense of humor, and I think God certainly does have a sense of humor, but I think this is more about the fact that God loves his glory. God loves to shine through the weaknesses of our lives to display his strength. 
God does the unthinkable to confound our minds and to show us that He is truly wise. God brings goodness and joy in the midst of suffering to show that He is good and faithful. And God changes the course of events through a chain of coincidental coincidental, uh, actions and activities like what happens in the book of Esther to display that he is lovingly and faithfully in control. He loves to work in ways that if we were paying attention, we would say, wow, that's miraculous. Only God can do that. In other words, he loves to show us the miraculous through the mundane things in life. And look, as I look back at my life, there are countless events and interactions that at the time didn't seem like much but became a key part of God's calling in my life. I often think, over the past 20 years, I've often thought to myself, what if that pastor who was sitting on the bench with me didn't say, like, let's stay for five more minutes? What if we got up at 10.15 and walked and got on that bus and never saw Jane again? But see, there are things behind every moment. We're always looking for the miraculous thing to happen in our lives. But what if the miraculous thing is the mundane thing that's right in front of us? And just like Esther and Mordecai, if we had the eyes of faith to see it, it would change the course of our lives. And as we think through this, I think that, you know, not only are we made to look and see the faith that Esther and Mordecai had and how God brought a great reversal in their situation, but it points us to the ultimate greatest reversal of all, which is that Jesus of Nazareth, a carpenter, itinerant Jewish teacher, was hung on a criminal's cross unjustly as an innocent man and crucified in an event that outside of the province of Judea, maybe the city of Jerusalem, the rest of the world didn't even know about and ignored as a mundane event. Yet in the end, it became the greatest reversal in human history because he rose from the dead three days later. And if you were in Christ as a new creation, that great reversal is already taken root in your life. And it promises more to come. And so the miraculous does happen in the mundane in our lives if we are able to see it through the eyes of faith. And let me just tell you this. There are many ways that I I think we can cultivate the way of seeing the miraculous in the mundane things in our lives. But I think probably the most powerful is cultivating a posture of thankfulness. When we look at the Psalms and we see that the psalmists often encourage us to be thankful above all in first place, They realize that there is something about being thankful that leads us into worship and gives us the proper perspective. When Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.16, Rejoice always, be thankful in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you, I think he's on to something. When we are thankful in all circumstances, we just have a posture of thankfulness, we begin to see how God is working all around us in amazing and miraculous ways. And look, We're always asking, what is God's will for us? According to Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5.16, it has something to do with being thankful in all circumstances. What if it was just as simple as that? If it was God's will for you to be thankful in all circumstances? I think it's an appropriate way for us to respond as we enter into the Thanksgiving week. We think about what Thanksgiving means. And this morning, we have a response station set up as we respond to what we've heard this morning, what we've read from God's word. Those are our Thanksgiving trees, at least for this Sunday morning. They're Thanksgiving trees. Use your imagination. They're Thanksgiving trees. But what we've done with these is we've got tags on the tables there along with some pens. And what I want to encourage you to do as we respond to God's word this morning is that whatever phrase or whatever word in your mind not just reminds you of like the things that you have that you're thankful for, 
but something that reminds you of God's activity in your life that you are thankful for. And even if you're in the midst of it right now and, and, and you can't see what the end result is going to look like, how do you give thanks to God in the circumstance that you're in right now, in all circumstances? And so write down a word or a phrase and you can take one of those tags and just attach it to the tree of, as a way of just saying thank you, God. Thank you that you're faithful in the midst of this. Thank you that even though I can't see what the end is going to be, I know that you're going to be faithful because you have been in the past. So as we do this morning, I want to encourage you to respond that way. I want to pray for us. We also have our prayer partners who are there at the response stations. And so if you would like somebody to pray with, you can simply talk to them and they'll be happy to pray for you through this as well. But after we pray, I want to invite you to get up to the tables, take those tags, write something on it, hang it on the tree. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that you are good and faithful in every circumstance. We thank you that you don't waste opportunities and moments in our lives. And we know, Lord, that we miss so many of them because we are preoccupied with all other things in our lives. We, we pretend, or, we, or we think that we're too busy. Um, we find ourselves in, in the opposite posture of thankfulness. We're grumbling and complaining all the time, which causes us to miss what you're doing in and around us. And so, Lord, we ask that you would, by your Spirit, do a work in our hearts this morning. And that as we embark on this week of Thanksgiving, as it leads up to Thursday, I pray that Thursday wouldn't be just about turkey and family, as awesome as those things are, which they certainly are, but they'd be about reflecting on what you have done in our lives, and Lord, what you continue to do. And Lord, as we prepare our hearts even now, I pray that this response time would be a time for us to just say, Lord, thank you for showing uh, revealing yourself to me in this way. And we'll be able to offer you heartfelt thanks that lead then to worship. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In just a moment, we'll rejoin our pastor for today's closing thoughts. But first, we wanted to thank you for tuning in. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com. Now, some closing thoughts from our pastor. This past Wednesday, we had a uh, prayer meeting here in this room. Uh, some of you were there. We had 35 people show up, which thank you so much for being here. It was a great showing. One of the things that we asked for prayer for, that we prayed about that night though, is the upcoming Thanksgiving holiday and when we sit down with family members and we know that family relationships, there's tension and there's awkwardness and those kinds of things. A lot of times because there has been uh, hurt that has been uh, in the past, there has been brokenness, there is unforgiveness. And so we prayed that we as Christ followers, as people who have been forgiven, would be agents of healing in those relationships in our families. And so I want to encourage you with that this, this morning, that as you leave this place, think about as you're going to reunite with family members, what is one place or what is one relationship that you can help be a healing agent for? Because God in Christ has forgiven you so that you can forgive others. Or maybe you can be a, a, a person who just prays or encourages somebody who's downcast or struggling in your family. Use Thanksgiving as an opportunity to celebrate, but as an opportunity for ministry as well, as the Lord uses you. Talk about a miraculous opportunity. There's one right there. So 
I want to pray for all of us as we're dismissed this morning. Lord, would you do that in us? Would you help us to see the ways that maybe we don't even see right now, but you might be revealing to us over the next few days how we can be people who are agents of healing and broken relationships. We know that our families and the people we know, our friends, are struggling in so many ways, and a lot of those things have to do with past hurts and disappointments and fights and arguments that started really small and have now become a big thing over years. Lord, would you be the one? You are a God who that is not too big for you to heal. And I would pray that we would see that as people who have been forgiven in Christ Jesus, that we would be the ones who, if we have to swallow our pride and humble ourselves, be the ones who lead in showing your love and your forgiveness towards others. And we pray that in the end, Lord, you would be glorified in all things. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a happy Thanksgiving. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.